I have some very good news a little bit later on this month we will be able to start watching the next season of The Crown. <laughs> and the only thing that could make me more happy would be if another season of Downton Abbey were to come out. Because together, they represent what my wife will often refer to as, quote unquote, my soap operas. <laughs> and if you're like me, when these episodes drop, uh, you're going to engage in something that is a relatively new phenomenon. In fact, when historians write about this period of history, they will be able to say that there was a certain phrase introduced into the English language and perhaps the English dictionary that had never been there before, and it's the phrase, binge watch. You see, years ago, in the Dark Ages, there was this thing called television. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. In fact, it was a box that was three-dimensional, not like the ones that sit flush against your wall. It actually had programming transmitted to it. You were only able to watch whatever shows were available on the channels that your parents agreed to pay for. And early on, we didn't even have remote controls. You had to get up off the sofa, walk across the room, and turn the dial with your hands. Unless, of course, you were the youngest child in the room, and that was their job. Now, if we were to binge watch today, one of the things that you would know is that right as the one episode ends, the screen gets a little smaller. There are some credits that roll, and off to the right-hand side in the corner is another little screen, and it gives you a preview of what's to come next. If we had been watching the life of David, last week the scene would have ended with David giving back the water jug and the spear of Saul, his enemy. And then over in the right-hand corner, a little screen would pop up, but it would be totally black. Turn your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Samuel. The book of Samuel in your Bible is broken up into two parts, first and second. That's because there was limited technology back when the author was writing this, and scrolls were only so big, and so you had to put it on two. But there is only one book, and it's not even Samuel. That's a name given to it by editors later on. The authors didn't title their books. You can call it the book of David if you wanted. There's nothing sacred about the names of the books of your Bible. But if you don't have a copy of your own, Take the Pew Bible in front of you and turn to page 249. Now, this is where we're going to enter into one of the darkest and blackest chapters in the life of David and in the book of Samuel. The title for the message this morning is The Mighty Have Fallen. We're going to look at this in two main sections, the failure of the kings and the faithfulness of the king. Big idea is that God is faithful to his covenant. Beginning in chapter 27, we see this. It opens with these rather telling words. Then David said in his heart. We can pause right there for a moment because David is speaking to himself. 
And David is facing a dilemma. David has realized in his previous encounter with Saul that Saul is going to kill him, that Saul is going to pursue him until he gets him, that if the Lord doesn't deliver him out of Saul's hand over and over again, his life is over. In fact, it says at the end of chapter 26 that Saul went one way and David went the other. And even though David had been so faithfully cared for, even though David had been anointed as king, even though David had refused to stretch out his hand against God's anointed, and even though God had shown David nothing but miraculous deliverance, this time, when David speaks to his heart, speaks to himself, he is speaking lies. David is speaking lies to himself. Would that David had pulled out the sheet of paper that he wrote Psalm 34 on? Would that David had reminded himself of what happened when he went to Gath and the Philistines were at risk of turning against him so he pleaded insanity and ran away? Would that David could remember that God will always redeem his people? Instead, that him wasn't playing in his mind. And he was saying something else to himself. And it certainly wasn't Scripture. He says this, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. How can the same man who said that God will redeem me also be the man who says that one day by the hand of Saul I will perish? It gets worse. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. You never escape out of the hand of your enemy by running out of the will of God. And this is what David chooses to do. And so he makes his way back to familiar territory for him. Not God's land, not the covenant land that was promised to Abraham, not the land governed by Israel at this time, but the land that had yet to be delivered to them, the land of the Philistines, the city of Gath, right back over to the very people that he had run to earlier. And this time, instead of acting like a madman, he shows up having been uh, healed of whatever his madness was, and he's not alone. He's there with 600 men and their families and David's two wives. And he goes straight back to Gath. And now the people are glad to receive him because he really could be a soldier for hire. He comes back not as a mercenary, but as a man who has his own army. And he takes up residence in Gath, and things are going well for a while. And then he says to Achish the king, why don't we do this? I got a lot of mouths to feed. And I'm taking up a lot of your precious space in Gath. Why don't you give me my own city? And I'll go set up out there and I'll be out of your hair. And when you need me, you just call and I'll muster the army and we'll go fight. And Akish says to himself, well, David, there's really none like you. You're one of the best warriors I've ever seen. We still talk about you around here. The guy who killed Goliath. You go ahead and take a city. Tell you what, how does Ziklag sound to you? And David says, perfect. And so he moves his army down south, 
right on the border of Philistine and Israel, and he establishes himself in Ziklag. And the text does not say that David brought the men together and they began farming the fields and looking after themselves. It says, as a matter of fact, that David went to doing what traveling bands of marauders have done for thousands of years, and they would go out as a group from Ziklag to another neighboring city or village, and they would steal everything the people had. As a matter of fact, if you read the text, you'll see that David did far more than just steal. Allow your eyes just to travel down a little bit. Verse 9, And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep and the oxen and the donkeys and the camels and the garments and go back to Achish. Brothers and sisters, for 16 months, David was a thief and a mass murderer. David engaged in ethnic cleansing and genocide. David took his men, the very ones that were forbidden from killing Nabal and his men because of the wise intervention of Abigail, and took them instead to go from town to town to kill men, women, and children. Why? Because, as the movie put it, dead men tell no tales. He didn't want word getting back to Achish because on top of stealing and killing, he was also engaged in pathological lying. And he would tell the king in Gath that here is your part of the spoil. And I got it from killing Israelites, from killing people in Judah. And if you can sense for a moment the blackness and the darkness of this event, you have this man anointed by God to be the king. And God isn't mentioned once in the chapter. You have a man that was set apart and anointed and protected by God himself, and yet he has put himself under the care and provision of a pagan king. You have a man who up until then had been doing pretty well, generally upstanding, holding on to the covenant decrees of God, but now he has turned into a murderer and a thief and a liar. And to top it all off, you have a man who is now paying tithes, not to God, but to a pagan king. It doesn't really get much darker than this. It doesn't really get worse than this. If you're reading this as an Israelite, you are realizing that the kingdom is in very, very bad shape. Because the one hope we had, which was David, now seems to have completely fallen off a cliff morally. In fact, it's so bad that verse 12 of chapter 27 says, and Achish trusted David. The highest level of trust that David had was from a pagan king who believed David's lies and concluded that he had been out there killing his own people, and therefore there would never be any hope that he would ever go back to them or ever lead them as king. He believed that he would have David under his thumb as his servant forever. This might be the point in the drama where we look over and see that Saul has had a conversion experience, that Saul has gotten his act together, that David had forfeited his opportunities to lead, and that God was going to go back and allow Saul to establish himself. But where everything is darkness and blackness around the circumstances of David, 
it is just as dark and black around the spirituality of Saul. This is what the author is doing for us. The author is now going to help us by understanding what's going on in Saul's camp as well. Look at chapter 28. David has aligned himself with Achish, and David is now presented to him as being somebody who will go and to fight against his own people, the Israelites. As a matter of fact, it says that he was so trusted that he was going to be the very bodyguard of the king. He was going to be among the inner circle of the king as they go and march against Israel. They believed David when he said that he was killing people in Judah, and so they align him now to be one of their mercenaries. Now they are going to force David to go and fight against his own people. And what you get is a cutaway shot. Now this is not chronological, so just make a note of this. It's like in the movie where one scene ends and then another scene begins, and down there in the bottom of the screen, there's a little time stamp. And, and, and if that were to happen and this were a movie, what it would say down there is it would say, the night before the battle. Now, this is still future from what we just read about David, and there's going to be an event that will happen in between, but as the author is putting these ideas together, they are thematic, not chronological. And so we have this famous story of Saul and the witch. I mean, how often do we get to talk about witches on church? We just got past Halloween. Well, here's a Halloween sermon for you. We get to talk about a real witch, a medium. By medium, it means somebody who mediates, who goes in between, or a necromancer, or a sorcerer. There are all these different words for the same practitioner. This was somebody who claimed to put themselves between the land of the living and the land of the dead. They were a bridge to the other side. And Saul is so desperate for word about how the battle is going that he's reaching out to one of these witches. Now, you might ask yourself, why? Why not just pray and ask God? Why not wait for Yahweh to give you direction? Well, the answer comes to us in the text. Look at chapter 28. It says very clearly that Saul, verse 6, inquired of the Lord, and Yahweh did not answer him either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. You see, God spoke to his prophets, his priests, and his kings. And what the author is doing for us here is helping us to understand that God had cut off Saul. He was not communicating with him anymore. He was giving him the silent treatment have you ever been ignored by someone that you love? Family member? Maybe a parent? Maybe a child? And that person will not return your phone call? They won't respond to your texts? You get close to them and they won't talk to you in person? They avoid making eye contact? Brothers and sisters, is it possible that there's somebody in this room right now that you have a relationship like that with? Something happened between the two of you years ago, 
and you've never been able to reconcile it. You come to church every Sunday, but you sit on opposite sides of the room, and you refuse to look at one another and refuse to talk to one another because that grudge is so big that it's bigger than the gospel, and it's bigger than forgiveness, and it's bigger than getting over yourself. Well, that's a very sinful kind of silence, but there's also a spiritual kind of silence, and it comes from God. God cuts off Saul. He stops talking to him. He stops talking back to him when Saul prays. He is treating Saul the same way that he treated Eli back at the beginning of this book. Remember, God had stopped talking to Eli, and so Samuel had to be the one that went and got the word from the Lord. But here, God isn't even speaking through the priests. The priests had what was called the Urim. It was something that they wore, and they were able to discern God's will through it. That was the priest. There were no prophets talking because the prophets had left. And there were no visions, which is often the way that God spoke to his kings through visions and dreams. So when the prophet says there were no visions and dreams, there was no Urim, and there were no prophets, he means that God had cut off Saul from any communication, whether priest, prophet, or king. And so what does Paul do? He turns to witchcraft. And even though he had put those necromancers out of the kingdom as he was supposed to, it's amazing that when he needs one, his men are able to find one right away. Go find me a witch. And they say, no problem. I know exactly where one is, just over here in Endor. And so he goes. And he goes by night. And he goes around the army of the Philistines who had camped out and they were ready to attack. And he takes a very, very difficult route. And it's very, very high risk. But he goes around the camp. And he goes to the witch. And he's disguised. And he says, I want you to call somebody up for me. And she says, rightly, Saul has put all these people out of the kingdom. Are you trying to get me killed? And Saul responds by using the Lord's name in vain. Look at chapter 8 and verse 10. But Saul swore to her by Yahweh, as Yahweh lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. He swears to God and uses his name in vain and says, Yahweh himself will make sure that you, a necromancer, witch, median, sorcerer, will not receive any punishment because he has stopped talking to me, so I am going to get my information instead from you. And so he asks her to call up Samuel. And I don't believe that we have any reason to doubt what the author wrote here. It is descriptive, not prescriptive. He doesn't tell you how she did it, because the last thing you should be doing is wondering how to get involved in witchcraft. You don't need a tutorial. But whatever she did, she did. And it wasn't some show. It's not like today when you go to a so-called fortune teller or a so-called person who can connect with the dead, who are no better than so-called faith healers. But what she did was she went and she was actually able to communicate with Samuel. And the reason why I know that wasn't the norm is because she is more shocked than anyone. Sure enough, somebody does come up and is visible. And she's terrified by it. She realizes that now that it's Saul, she realizes what's going on. And this person who comes up is wrapped in a robe. It's Samuel. And the question, of course, is, was it really Samuel? Well, the author here doesn't say it wasn't. God uses whatever means he chooses to use to do whatever he wants to do in the life of the people that are here, and so it doesn't condone the practice. But as a matter of fact, there's no reason to believe that 
God didn't allow this to happen as a way to communicate with Saul. And you'll notice down in the text that Saul has a conversation with Samuel. Verse 15, Samuel says, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answers, I'm in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why do you ask me, since Yahweh has turned from you and become your enemy? Saul, you're now an enemy of God. Brothers and sisters, don't carry on in a pattern of life that would invite a situation where God becomes your enemy. Better to have enemies of men surround you every day than to have God as your enemy for one single moment. And so he says to him, Yahweh has done to you as he has spoken by me, for Yahweh has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David, because you did not obey the voice of Yahweh and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, Yahweh has done this thing to you this day. Do you remember earlier, a few weeks back, when Saul refused to put everything under the ban and he brings back Agag? And it's Samuel who has to step in and hack the king to pieces. And as a result, he says, the kingdom has been torn from you, Saul. That's what's going on here. It's the fulfillment. But more than just losing his kingdom, he's also going to lose his life. Verse 19, moreover, Yahweh will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, for tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. Yahweh will give the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. At this point, Saul collapses. He's hungry, he's thirsty, he's tired, and his heart dies inside of him. It's not that much different than Nabal. He has some sort of physical reaction. He collapses, and the men around him try to get him to eat something, And even the witch says, let me prepare a meal for you. And she goes and kills a fatted calf and makes some unleavened bread. And she goes and she brings it then for Saul to have something to eat. And finally, she can coax him into eating something, and he revives himself a little bit physically. But the end of the chapter ends with these words, and it's meant to be not only symbolic, but also circumstantial. They rose, verse 25, and went away at night. You know, this is reminiscent of what happens after Judas betrays Christ. It's in the upper room. It's the Last Supper. And he leaves, and it was night. The heavy darkness of the circumstances reflects the heavy darkness of the spirituality that had descended upon Saul. Well, Now we move back to another scene. Now this is several days earlier in chapter 29. And we're joining it in the middle. We're joining it essentially as it's happening. Verse 1 of chapter 29. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek. And the Israelites had encamped by the spring that's in Jezreel. This gives us some context, as it were, about what is going on and where they are. This is about 120 miles north of Ziklag. David is with his men, the 600 of them, 
and they are up there in Afek, 120 miles from Ziklag. It would be as if you were to walk away from our church building right now and on foot walk all the way up to Los Angeles. But there's no five freeway. You've got to do it over the natural hilly terrain in the heat of the day, in the cold of the night, with wild animals and bands of looting marauders waiting for you at every turn. And so the men had made their way up, and they were ready to fight now against the Israelites. And I have to believe that David, in the midst of his spiritual darkness, in the midst of his wandering from God, still has to feel some intense fear and trepidation. What am I going to do? If I go out to battle tomorrow against my own people, there's no way that I'm ever going to be able to get the kingdom. They're going to find me. They're going to figure it out. I can't pretend anymore. There's no way for me to get out of this. I'm doomed. And no doubt in his mind, he's thinking about all these different ways he might be able to get out of it. Maybe if I feign madness again. That worked last time. Maybe I could have another one of those spells. Maybe we can all pretend to be sick. Maybe, maybe we can all turn and attack the Philistines who we're supposed to be protecting. Maybe we can all just run away in the middle of the night and his mind is racing with ways to get himself and his men out of this bind and all of a sudden he gets granted this amazing get-out-of-war-free card. Because as you'll see in this chapter, the Philistines knew who David was. They'd heard of this guy before. In fact, they had even worried that someday he might be in their midst. And so they ask in verse 3 of chapter 29, what are these Hebrews doing here? And the king says, I have found no fault in David or any of his men up until this very day. And the other Philistines, who are much smarter than Achish, who believes David for some reason, says, I know what's going on, and there is no way that David is going to take vengeance against his own people. The only way for David to get out of this mess is for David to turn against us. He is not trustworthy. There's no way I'm going out into battle with him and 600 of his men. That would be the worst tactical error you could possibly make. And he and Akish and the others go back and forth. They call them the lords, the Philistines. They make this sort of counsel. And the real deal breaker is that one of them turns and says, you know what, I've heard a song they sing about him. And here's that song again. Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. And apparently what Achish had forgotten, these other lords of the Philistines remembered, and those ten thousands were ten thousands of Philistines. And there's no way we're going to have him out on the battlefield because if he signals to the Israelite forces that he is on their side, all of a sudden we've got an army right in our midst and he could cut us in half. And so they reject him and they send him home. Look at verse 6. Achish calls David over and he says to him, as Yahweh lives, invoking the very name of Yahweh's God, you've been honest with me. You've all... <laughs> Isn't that ironic? He says to David, you've been a great, honest friend to me. In fact... I would love to have you march out with us. I found nothing wrong with you, but the lords of the Philistines don't approve of you. And then David feigns this disappointment like, oh, what do you mean? What have I done? Inside he's thinking, I just got out of this again. And he feigns disappointments. 
And Akish heaps it on, this flattery. He says, I know that you are blameless in my sight as an angel of God. How does David take that kind of compliment, knowing what he's really like? Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, he shall not go up with us to the battle. Well, David suffers from something that a lot of people do in life, and that is that you might find favor in the eyes of one leader, but there are other leaders around, and those leaders, if someone gets in their ear about you, will turn against you, you become toxic to them, and they will do everything they can to kill your career. Some of you have dealt with that in the world. You've dealt with that at your jobs. You know what that's like. You've done nothing wrong, but somebody's got it out for you, and that's what happens with David. And David has said, you got to go. I wish it didn't happen to you this way. Akish and David have this moment where they're trying to define the relationship, and Akish looks him in the eye and says, it's not you, it's me. And here they break up, and he says, now you've got to go and go quickly. And David says, fine, I'll go. And he grabs his men, and they start the 120-mile trek back down to Ziklag. What are they thinking? They're thinking, wow, I can't believe we got out of that. And they're thinking, this is amazing. I can't wait to get home. And so the men depart from there. The failure of the king, whether it's David or the failure of the king, whether it's Saul, reaching this culminating moment, and David leaves. Well, this brings us to our second point this morning, and that is the faithfulness of the king. Because something very shocking happens. As David and his men are making their way back to Ziklag, it would have taken them at least three days for this journey. They get there, and as they cross over the hill, as they're looking towards Ziklag, they've walked 120 miles. Uh, they've been up all day, all night. They're carrying all their weapons of war. All they want to do is get home. They've been gone for weeks or possibly months. And as they get over the horizon and they look down at their city, what do they see? Smoke rising up. And you can see a city from a long way off if you're walking around Israel. And no doubt those men, even though they were exhausted, they picked up the pace. They're going as fast as they can. They're running. They're trying to figure out what's going on. And they get in through the broken down gates of their city and everything has been destroyed. Everything has been laid waste. Their homes have been burned. There's nothing but the shell of each of their houses and everything is gone. The women are gone. The children are gone. The animals are gone. And David stands there in the smoldering ruin of his city looking around at 600 men who are looking at him and they're thinking this, it's your fault. You're the one who's been going around from city to city, stealing everybody's goods. You're the one who told us to take our swords and plunge them into women and into children. David, you are guilty of the same kind of horrific crimes that people right now are screaming about because they see it happening on TV and they're blaming Hamas, Hezbollah, terrorists. David's doing the same thing. And these men are saying, you got what was coming to you. My wife's gone. My children are gone. My goods are gone. My house is burned. You're dead. Put yourself in the shoes of those men right now. Try to channel what their emotion would be like. 
verse 6 of chapter 30. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. This is the blackest moment in the narrative. But it's also the moment where the light begins to shine. Maybe we thought we'd lost David. Maybe we thought it was over for him. Maybe we thought David had completely gone to the other side and was just going to loot and pillage and murder for his own benefit for the rest of his life. But at the darkest moment in the narrative, we read this. But... David strengthened himself in Yahweh, his God. Isn't it good news, brothers and sisters, that at the lowest point, when you have sinned over and over again intentionally and you know it, when you have run from the will of God, run from the Word of God, run from the people of God, run from fellowship with God, you have gorged yourself on everything that the world has to offer and all of its temporal pleasures, at the moment when you think you're most lost and most hopeless and that God in His righteous wrath is going to put you under His fist and crush you because you deserve it, there is still hope. May I show you hope May I present to you hope, hope in the life of David. I would venture to say that there is no one in this room who is guilty of mass murder and genocide. I certainly hope not. But even if you were, very same hope is held out to you that's held out to David. David turns, he repents. And he seeks the Lord, and he does it the right way. He seeks the Lord in prayer. He says, get me Abiathar. Bring out the instruments that God uses to reveal his will. I want to hear from God. Verse 8, And David inquired of Yahweh, Shall I pursue after the band? Shall I overtake them? And he answered, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue I don't know what else the Lord revealed, but I do know this. David hasn't read Samuel. David doesn't know what's about to happen. All David knows is that everything is gone. David has no assurance at all until this moment. And maybe he's hanging on that word when God says, you will rescue. Maybe he's hanging on to that one word, rescue. Is it possible? that after I have killed all of them, that they won't kill my family? Not even my wives? And Yahweh sends him out. And he gets the 600 men, but only 400 can go because the other 200 are so exhausted from the journey that they literally can't carry themselves. And so David though he is exhausted too, takes the 400 and he travels day and night in pursuit. He meets an Egyptian, ironically, who was left behind because he got sick and his owner ditched him. And he says, if you'll spare my life, I'll tell you where to find him. And David makes an agreement. He looks after this Egyptian and then he goes and he finds the camp and they go down and they slaughter 
them. This is the first righteous slaughter that David has been engaged with since he came into the land of the Philistines. And David goes down and he kills them. And notice verse 18, David recovers all that the Amalekites had taken and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. Wow. Amazing scene, isn't it? And in the midst of this celebration, verse 22 says that the wicked and the worthless fellows among him, that word worthless, you've seen it before. Hannah says to Eli, I'm not a worthless woman out here drunk and babbling. Eli's sons are called worthless sons. David's own army is filled with wicked and worthless men. And some of those men turn and say, well, I don't know about you, but I'm not giving anything to these 200 guys who stayed behind and couldn't come with us. They're just there in the baggage like Saul was when they were trying to find him. I'm not going to give anything to them. They haven't deserved it. And David says, no, we're going to split this up equally. There's no hierarchy here. This is grace. It's not about what you've done to earn anything. It's about the magnanimous generosity of the king. Do you see how David is foreshadowing Christ? And just like Christ said, I don't care if you show up and work for 12 hours or for 10 hours or for 8 hours or for 6 hours or for 4 hours or for 2 hours, you all receive the same wages. There's no hierarchy. There's no one person with 10 crowns and one person with one crown. There's no variation. There's no different capacity to enjoy heaven forever. David is reflecting this, previewing it for us. And he says everybody will get their share. And then David takes some and he passes it around to the cities in Judah, to his own people, the Israelites, whom he had been with. Verse 31 of chapter 30 says all the places where David and his men had roamed. He sends around gifts to all of them as well. The faithfulness of the king. Well, verse 1 of chapter 31 moves the narrative along even further. Notice what it says. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines, and they fell slain on Mount Galboa. Remember how I said earlier it was a little bit of a fast-forward, that scene where Saul goes to the witch at Endor? Well, now we're picking up back where we were then. It says that Saul rose after he ate. He went back, and it was night. Now it's the next morning, and the battle is raging. And we're like a journalist going live, saying, we're joining you now from the scene where Saul's men are being driven back by the Philistines. Let us tell you how things are going right now. And you'll notice he says that they were falling everywhere. And the Philistines, verse 2, overtook Saul and his sons. And the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchashua, the sons of Saul. The reporter is looking back and, and as he's speaking in the background, there come the Philistines in their chariots of war. And they kill the very princes of the king. And things only get worse. The battle presses hard against Saul. And Saul goes up onto the mountain where he can look over it from a higher perspective. 
And he goes up there because, you see, the Philistines were very good warriors, and most of them were most, most lethal on their chariots. So he goes up into the hills because you can't bring chariots up a hill like that. They lack the horsepower. There's no four-wheel drive. And so he thinks, I'm up here and I'm safe, but you know what's different about archers and chariot riders is that archers can hurt you from far away. And those archers were able to take aim at him and they were able to run him through with maybe several arrows. Not lethally, didn't go into his neck, didn't go into his heart, maybe into his legs, maybe into the lower extremities, into his bowels, maybe his arms, we don't know. But he's clearly wounded. He's clearly not going to make it. He's clearly slowly dying. And so, instead of calling out to Yahweh for deliverance, he quits. And he turns to his armor bearer and he says, kill me because I do not want to be captured and tortured to death by the Philistines. And the armor bearer panics. He says, I can't do that. And so Saul takes his own sword and falls on it and kills himself. And the armor bearer sees that and kills himself as well. And thus ends the chapter of Saul. Thus ends the reign of Saul and his sons. Thus ends the kingdom. His relatives will continue to try to fight for the throne, even after David's anointed. For seven years, there'll be civil war, but the actual head has been removed. Saul is gone. Look at verse 9 of 31. They come back the next day to strip the slain of any valuables, and verse 9 says, they came across Saul. So they cut off his head and they stripped off his armor and they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols to the, and the people. And they put the armor in the temple of Ashtaroth and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. This is the good news of the gospel of Ashtaroth. That word, good news, in verse 9, is the word that in the Septuagint would be evangelion, the gospel. So they come and they find Saul and they cut off his head and they strip off his armor. And they go around and they proclaim the good news, the gospel, that Yahweh has been defeated and Ashtaroth has succeeded in the battle. Yahweh has failed. That's their gospel. You see, our gospel is that Christ has come to crush the head of the serpent, and there is therefore now no fear of sin and death and hell. Theirs is the opposite. They're saying, no, Dagon has been vindicated. Ashtaroth has been vindicated. And so they take Saul's armor, representative of him, and they hang it there in the very temple, on the wall, to just be a display, a trophy of what they were able to accomplish through the power of their God. And then they take Saul's head and they pass it around like a trophy and they take Saul's body and they hang it up. In 2 Samuel, it says they hung it up in the square, the public square, right up there on the wall, high enough that everyone could see it, but low enough that everyone could do whatever they wanted to it. Hang that body there, naked and displayed, the head hanging by its hair beside. Go ahead, walk by, do whatever you want to it. 
mutilate it, spit on it. This isn't an uncommon practice. Happened after World War II with leaders all the time. Happened to Mussolini and his body. And they go around and they begin desecrating the body and mutilating it. Part of the celebration. Until night came and a number of men who had heard about what happened made a very heroic pilgrimage. They were the men of Jabesh Gilead. What would cause them to go down and to risk their lives to sneak into enemy territory to get into the heart of their city, to the very public square, to undo what the Philistines had done, to take down that decomposing body, to take down that head, to carry this lifeless mass with them back to Jabesh Gilead, because it was Saul who had rescued them. You remember back in chapter 11, it was Saul who had intervened to fight for them so that they didn't get their right eyes gouged out. They never forgot that. They weren't here condoning Saul's behavior. They were here saying, we respect what Saul did for us. We never forgot that. This is our remembrance. And so they go and they rescue Saul's body. And because it is so mutilated and decomposing, though it's not typical practice for them, they burned the body to take care of the flesh. And then they gather up the bones and they put it under a tamarisk tree. It's called the tamarisk tree. It's similar to where we found Saul when he was lamenting that no one was giving him information by the tamarisk tree. Abraham plants a tamarisk tree as a reminder of God's covenant promises. We don't know which tree it was, but it was special to them. And they buried the bones there so they knew where to get them later, as we'll see when David recovers them in a few weeks. But this is the end of Saul's life on earth. Christ, though, the true king, is faithful because his providence will always bring him glory. And we'll see that as it continues to unfold. But before we get there, look at 2 Samuel. As we said, these are just one account, just two scrolls. But we have to look at chapter 1 because it really finishes the story. David goes back to Ziklag after he has recovered everything, including his wives. Everybody else got their wife and their children back and all of their goods. And a man comes up from Saul's camp. He claims that he is an Amalekite. And he says that he was up there and he saw Saul fall in battle. And he's lamenting and he's mourning. But Saul turned to him and said, come over here and kill me. And because he noticed that Saul couldn't possibly survive, he went ahead and killed him. And he took his crown and he took his armband and he brought that to David as a way of saying, here, I hope you'll be pleased with what I've done. This man is a liar. We know from the previous section how Saul really died. This guy wasn't there being called upon by Saul. There's no way an enemy would be that close if Saul had his men around. He was hiding. He saw what had happened. He was one of the enemy. And when Saul fell before they could get to him the next morning, he goes over and from Saul's lifeless body takes the crown and takes the armband. And he thinks that David is going to reward him. But David says, how dare you reach out your hand against the Lord's anointed. And this man, who thought he was going to get a prize because of his lie, ends up getting killed for it. All that's left for David and his men to do is to mourn. Mourn for Saul, mourn for Jonathan. And David finally goes back to what he does best, and he picks up his pen, and he writes. John McRae was a physician 
and in his 40s volunteered to fight with the Allies in World War I. And upon the death of one of his dear friends, wrote these words. In Flanders fields, the poppies blow, amid the crosses, row on row, that mark our place. And in the sky, the larks, still bravely singing fly, scarce heard amid the guns below. We are the dead. Short days ago we lived, saw, mourned, felt sunset glow, loved, and were loved. Now we lie in Flanders fields. He lamented over the loss of a close friend in a battle and turned his sorrow into poetry. David does the same thing. Verse 17 of chapter 1, and David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his sons. And he said, the bow is what the song is called. The bow should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. We don't have that book. It's no longer in print. It's been lost to antiquity. But it was not an inspired book of the Bible, but a book where such records were kept. And I just want you to notice the beauty of this lament. It's about the mighty ones, how they have fallen. Verse 19, how the mighty have fallen. Verse 21, for there the shield of the mighty was defiled. Verse 22, the fat of the mighty. Verse 25, how the mighty have fallen. Verse 26, how the mighty have fallen. He laments and he says to everybody in Israel, you need to lift up your voice and lament over the fact that God's anointed has been slain. This is not a time to celebrate because just like Christ, he does not take delight in the death even of the wicked. He says, no, you need to mourn. This is your glory, O Israel. It's been slain on your high places. The mighty have fallen. I don't want this to be published in Gath or on the streets of Ascalon. I don't want the Philistines to rejoice. In fact, I curse you, Mount Gilboa, because it was on you that Saul was killed. The blood has flown from them. The fat has flown from them. The bow that Jonathan had will not turn back, and the sword of Saul will not return empty. They will be vindicated. And the very pinnacle of the song is this. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they are not divided. They are swifter than eagles. They are stronger than lions. He calls the women to weep over Saul, who had done good for them. He says, the mighty have fallen even in the battle, and Jonathan, who he turns to mourn, lies slain on the high places, and his heart is utterly distressed because the love they had was extraordinary. It was a love that was different even than a love between a man and a woman. It was a love between two men who would fight together. It was the epitome of loyalty and faithfulness some of you know what it is like to literally be in battle, to be in situations where your life is on the line. Some of you have experienced it on battlefields around the world. Some of you have experienced it in burning buildings or in shootouts. You know what it's like to have to depend on the person beside you, the man beside you, to put your life in his hands. That's how Jonathan and David were. That's the love he is talking about. 
He's not trying to compare some sort of romantic love. He is saying it's a special love that can only be known by two men who have been in battle together and done battle together. Now, I've never been shot at, at least not with a gun, but I've been through some harrowing experiences, and I can tell you the men who stood with me through those experiences are men that I love with a love that I cannot even explain to you. It's one thing for somebody to come up to you after an experience and say, man, I wish I'd stood up for you. Your thought is, yeah, me too. (laughs) But for the ones who do in the moment, they're the ones you never forget. This is what David and Jonathan had. The mighty have fallen. The weapons of war have perished. And they will now sing this song every time they remember the battle that took Saul. Praise be to God that this points ultimately to Christ, the one who would never yield to demonic temptation. You know, in Matthew chapter 4, we get this exchange between him and Satan, and Satan says, I will offer you all the kingdoms of the world if you just bow down and worship me. And Christ says, no, I will wait. David said, I will not reach out my hand against God's anointed. I will wait. The second David, the perfect David, said, I will wait. It will all be mine. He also would not trust human wisdom. Remember in Matthew 26, 47 to 56, when Jesus is being arrested and Peter takes out his sword to try to kill the high priest and he misses and he cuts off the ear of his servant and Jesus says, put your sword away. You live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. Don't you think I could call down legions of angels right now to defend me? But then how would the scriptures be fulfilled? I trust in the wisdom of God, even if it means that I die a death I don't deserve to redeem sinners like you, Peter. Praise be to God that Christ does not trust human wisdom, and praise be to God that Christ does not doubt divine love. There was never a time where he thought that God had stopped loving him, even though on the cross he had forsaken him. He believed that the Father loved him. He knew that Father, Son, equal were the ones who would enjoy glory again together forever. And therefore, nothing would separate him from the love of God. And that's why Paul reminds us in Romans that nothing will separate us from the love of God. Brothers and sisters, the human kings around you will fail, but the king on his throne will never fail. And as we look to people like David and understand them to be types of Christ, let us not forget to look to Christ who fulfilled all of it and does for us what no human king could ever do and does it perfectly and lavishly and for his own glory. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for our time together in your word. Thank you for this magnificent book and for the privilege of studying it. As we lift our voices now again in song, May you receive our praise from hearts that are overflowing with gratitude for all that you have done for us in Christ, in whose name we pray and all God's people said.